Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The most dangerous thing that you can do is to love the people who are sitting around you right now. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the most dangerous jobs in America with the highest fatality rates involve fishing and hunting, followed by logging, followed by roofing. Others say that the most dangerous job in the world is underwater welding, with possibly a 15% mortality rate, fatality rate. So you may think this morning, phew, I'm glad I'm not in one of those professions, unless you are. At least I'm glad I'm not an underwater welder. But you're not called to any safer of a life. If you're a Christian, you've been called to a life that is characterized primarily by Christian love. That kind of life is dangerous. It is not a safe life. Jesus made this clear. Greater love has no one than this, he said, that someone lay down on his couch and watch TV. No, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Lay down his life is a pleasanter way of putting die. That's the height of Christian love. John is going to write later in this letter, by this we know love. What is it? This is how we know that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I know it's not as pleasant as live, laugh, love, but it's die. Don't put that on a plaque on your wall, but that is the Christian's calling of love. It's to die, to lay down our life. That's the metaphor. Again, Paul urges husbands, husbands, love your wives not just with the romantic candle flowers type of love, but here it is, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means died, you know. Over and over in the Bible, Christian love is compared to dying, specifically to dying on a cross. Jesus' death on the cross was a painful, terrible agonizing, and anything but safe act that for us stands forever as the epitome of Christian love. And in following Jesus, we have a cross upon our backs. We carry it to a place of crucifixion. If you don't, you're not a Christian. That means that in this life of love that we are living, you should expect to feel pain. If you don't feel some pain in your acts of love, it's not really loving <laughs> This is a dangerous life that we live. If you're really loving the believers around you, you will know it because it will hurt. It is going to cost you an energy, physical and emotional, and if it doesn't, it isn't love. But I want to speak a paradox here. I can also say with equal truth, living a life of love is the safest thing you will ever do. The dangers that are to be found in a life of love, and there are many, they are nothing to be compared with the dangers found in a life without love. 
If you live your life without love, if you isolate yourself and hide yourself away and never expose yourself emotionally or personally, maybe even physically to any other person, go isolate yourself away, you will save yourself a whole bushel full of sorrows and pains that those in fellowship and community experience all of the time. At the same time, you will endanger your very soul. You set yourself in a lonely world full of temptations with only the thinnest of safety nets when you cut yourself off from loving relationships with believers. You may think you are preserving yourself, especially if you have been hurt. It's understandable. That is a dangerous place to be. And so we can say with equal truth that although living a life of love is dangerous, living a life of love is also the safest sort of life that you can live. You who live in love, you have scars upon yourself to prove it. And yet you are still the safest of all people. John is going to write in chapter 4, whoever abides in love abides in God. Where in this world is a safer place for you to abide than to abide in God? And if you abide in love, meaning you live a life of love, that's exactly where you are. So I've spoken a paradox here in this introduction. Part of the reason I present it as a paradox is because John, in our text, is going to give us a paradox to prepare you for that. Last week, we saw in John what might be considered the first of three tests to see if there's evidence that you are truly a believer. We can call it the moral test, as some have called it. You keep the commandments of God. Today, we're moving into what's considered the second of the three tests. The third will be doctrinal. We'll see that later. The second one is your love. It is a test of love. Do you love believers? And we're going to see this from John presented first as a paradox which seems like a contradiction, but it's not. And then he's going to also give us a picture or an illustration to encourage you to live a life of love. So let's see that here, 1 John chapter 2 and beginning in verse 7. Be loved. I am writing you no new commandment, but... An old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here we have, first, a paradox. It's a paradox because he comes right out and says, this commandment I'm giving you, which is to love the believers, to love one another. He says, trust me, it's not a new commandment. And then in verse 8, he says, actually, it is a new commandment. That's what we call a paradox. And then he follows that up with a picture 
using, as he likes to do all the time, the picture we've seen already in chapter 1 of light and darkness. Both of these two things, the paradox and the picture, which we'll take up our time today, conspire together to present to us the fact that loving one another is the safest of all commands. Dangerous, but it's your only safety. Paradox in itself. So let's look at the text then. Those are our two headings, paradox and picture. Let's begin with the paradox, which is given us in verses 7 and 8 here. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandments, the words that you've heard. Now here's the paradox of it. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, that's Jesus, and it's true in you, believers, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. This is a paradox. What is a paradox? You find these many times in the Bible, and you find them in conversation too, so you're used to them, but a paradox, very simply put, is something that when you first look at it, it looks like a contradiction. It looks like A and B can't both be true. But when you think about it for just a little bit, you realize it's not a contradiction. It's a very interesting true point. So it's presented to you almost as if it were a contradiction, but that's just to make you think about it. It would only be a true, genuine contradiction if we said A is true and A is false in exactly the same sense. So if John said, this is not a new commandment, and also it is a new commandment in exactly the same sense, then all the atheist friends would be right, contradictions in the Bible, but surely we should give a little more credit to at least this human author, John, that he wouldn't write a contradiction immediately after the seven verse to eight verse. He doesn't. So this is a paradox where he's putting it in this way and saying, in one sense, the love command is not new. In another different sense, the love command is new. And he leaves it to us to wrestle through in what sense is it not new and in what sense is it new. And that's, of course, what we're doing right now. So let's look at the first not new part of the love command, which is given in verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment. Not, not a new commandment. Instead, it's an old commandment that you had from the beginning, and the old commandment's the word that you have heard. In what sense is the love command not new? Really what you have in this verse is one of many reasons that living a life of love is safe. It's safe because if you devote yourself to a life of love, you are not possibly throwing away your efforts and your energies in some newfangled idea coming out of some university somewhere that will be gone in 20 years. John wants to make very clear to you that unlike his Gnostic counterparts, those were the false teachers he's going to write about a lot in here, these Gnostic or proto-pre-Gnostic thinkers who are coming in with a different gospel, unlike them, they delighted in bringing something new. Everything was about the secret new knowledge they had to offer, and that's what drew in crowds for them. And John is saying, contrary to them, what I'm offering to you, it's not some new thing I just thought up in my bedroom and thought I'd throw in front of you and let you dedicate your life to it. <laughs> Here you are. You only have one life. Do you want to 
throw your entire life upon some opinion of a preacher from a pulpit because he wears a suit or something. Surely you don't. Surely you want to live your life according to a way or a manner or a command that is ancient, that has some stability, that there's some reasonable sense in keeping, living for, building your life upon. That's the point in verse 7. He wants you to know that the love command, it's not brand new. He didn't pull it out of a hat. There's some stability to this command. He has to say it this way probably because if you looked at his gospel, he speaks of Jesus as speaking of a new commandment I give to you to love one another. So we're going to get to that in verse 8. So Jesus uses this language, the love command is a new command. And possibly John's opponents took hold of that and said, see, he's got a new commandment. And John is saying, no, 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 no. We'll get to that. In some sense, it's new. But first I want you to know, in another sense, it's old. John refutes that false notion. He says, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. And as with John all the time, he'll use a simple word like beginning, <laughs> and you wish he'd give us a footnote to tell us the beginning of what. And we have to think through that. In this case, I don't think it's too difficult to work through. People may differ on this, but for me, I think the next verse explains what beginning he means. He says, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. When did they hear it? At the beginning. Beginning of what? Beginning of when the gospel came to them. I think that's the idea of beginning here. The old commandment, the love command, John is saying. I'm not just randomly giving it to you right now. He's speaking to these believers and he's saying, you remember way back when, when you lived in your pagan ignorance and the gospel came to you, perhaps from John or his co-workers or others, the gospel, the word he calls it, the gospel first came to you, you heard it, and as a part of this gospel, not that you have to love to be saved, but just like what John's saying, if you're saved, you'll love. As a part of this gospel, we also, in fulfilling the Great Commission, didn't just make you disciples, we taught you to obey all that Jesus commanded, and that includes, primarily, loving each other. So John is saying, I'm not just making that up right now, we brought that with us when we first brought you the gospel. And here you are, you are a believer, if you've come to Christ, when you came to Christ, did you have a sense that you should love people? <laughs> Did you come to Christ and have a sense, I should really hate everyone now? <laughs> you really knew pretty early on, whether it was told to you explicitly, hey, you should love each other, perhaps the person investing in you or the person who led you to Christ, they demonstrated that for you and they helped you to love other people. Do you remember when they helped you to work through some of your early conflicts with Christians? This is how you handle it. This is how you maintain the spirit of unity and love each other. Or if you're married, they help you love your spouse. This love command, it's not a part of the gospel in the sense that it saves you, but it is a part of the broader gospel message in that when you believe the gospel and are saved, then you start loving. <laughs> you start keeping God's commandments and the greatest is love. So John is saying, this isn't new. You, you know this already. If I'm telling you to love, I'm only reminding you because it's not a new commandment. It's an old one you had from the beginning of when you first came to Christ. We told you this. He'll say later in his letter, in this commandment we have from Jesus, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is not something newfangled. Even if when you came to Christ, no one explicitly laid out for you the fact that you should now live a life of loving believers, 
you can't come to Christ and not have some sense of that. Because what you do have to believe in becoming a Christian is at least this, that Jesus died on a cross in love for you. And John is going to say later, we love because he first loved us. So even in believing the content of the gospel, even in believing that Jesus laid down his life in love for you, you immediately have an example that you ought to do the same for believers. So this is when you hear the gospel, there's no way to hear the gospel and not in some sense also to hear the appeal for you to start living a life of love toward believers. This is not a new task of Christians. This is important for us to remember now. You may say, well, of course I know that. I'm a Christian. I know to love believers. But you're also aware that this reminder is very helpful for us. Oftentimes, when someone first comes to Christ, you may remember that sunny season of your life. You came to Christ. Everything is new and vibrant. And loving others may have come very easily in that season of excitement. You may be giving clothes away, giving items away, finding homeless people, give everything I have, going... So there's a great excitement. You come to church, you look around, and you feel love everywhere. It's pulsating out of you. And then time goes on. And you mature as a Christian. But in the maturing, it's easy for a sort of skepticism to set in, a sort of sense of reality. That now you've aged past that early, naive season of just loving everybody, and now you look at everyone with the squinty eyes. <laughs> what are your true motives? What are you trying to get out of this? Okay, maybe in some senses that's a more realistic view, possibly, this sort of skepticism. But to you, John writes this, beloved, this isn't a new commandment for you. You need to be reminded of the old commandment. It's the word that you've heard. You can't harden your heart, or as John will later say, if you see your brother in need and close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in you? Do you know what that experience is, closing your heart? Have you ever felt that <laughs> when you see someone in need? But they're only in need because you told them to do this one thing and they didn't do it and now they're in need because they didn't listen to you and you close your heart against them and you don't want to help them because this is their own problem. They've gotten themselves into this. Or it's that person in the congregation who annoys you just a little bit. You can't even put your finger on it and they're in need. And you'll just let someone else take care of that. <laughs> no, this is the commandment you've always had. If you're a young Christian, if you're an old Christian, if you're a Christian right in the middle, as we'll see next week, the older, the younger, in the middle, it doesn't matter. This is the command, and you have to obey it. You need to hear this. It's not a new commandment. You know this. You see the people sitting around you? You have to love them. All of them. All the time. It's not a new commandment. Part of the reason that living a life this way, even though it's dangerous and difficult, you will be burned, you will be hurt, it's just how life goes, but even though there's dangers to it, it's still the safest, and the reason, part of the reason is, this is a certain established Christian command. It's not new. Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years all across the world. This has been the dangerous, safe call of the Christian, to love one another. And you feel how difficult that can be at times? Christians for 2,000 years have felt how difficult that could be at times, but they persevered in loving one another. When you enter into a life of loving believers, you're entering into a rich tradition of Christian love. You are continuing the experience of Christians who love one another. It's not new. 
you are taking the mantle and continuing on with a great crowd of witnesses behind you who have worked through difficult relationship struggles, whether in medieval times, early church, more recently, Reformation, last hundred years, different places, Papua New Guinea, here, UK, anywhere. This is the common experience of Christians. It's not easy to love one another. It comes with dangers, but it is a safe way to live because it is a well-worn path. Beloved, it's not a new commandment. We just need to hear it anew. Love one another. But this is right where the paradox appears because that's simple enough. But then he goes on in the next verse and he says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. After he's convinced us, it's not. Which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. At the same time, but in a different sense. It is a new commandment. Doesn't ne neglect or nullify verse 7 because he's talking about in a different sense. Now, John 13, 34, as I referenced earlier, is quoting Jesus himself. And Jesus is the one who said to his disciples, quote, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The Christian command to love in this sense is new because just like Jesus said, it's new in him. It's true in him, referring to Jesus. There is a newness to the love command among Christians because of the Christ that Christians worship. This does not mean that the command to love never existed until Jesus said it right there in John 13. Before that, everyone thought we should all hate each other and do bad to each other all the time. Every religion, everyone thought that. And then Jesus said, no, 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 love each other. And they went, oh, we were so wrong. That's not what we mean. So many of the world's major religions, even with very ancient texts and traditions, did teach a sort of love, especially a love for neighbor. You can find variations on the golden rule in a lot of different parts of the world throughout ancient history. It's not that no one ever had the idea that we should love each other. Even when we look in the Old Testament, you may remember that Jesus built his own commandment of love upon the ancient command given in Leviticus of all places. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You say, that's Jesus. That's Leviticus. And Jesus quotes it. Jesus built his commandment upon that ancient one. So in what sense then is this a new commandment that you should love one another? Didn't we already know that? It's new because of who's saying it. It's new because never before did God himself take human flesh and proceed on his way to a cross and die in love to save sinners. That never happened before, you know? It was that one period of time. So that's why Jesus said there, new commandment I give you, love one another, just as I have loved you. That's the new part. You also are to love one another. You could look into, for example, Islam, and you may not have an explicit clear command in the Quran the main holy text that you should love others. There are things similar, but if you go into early Islamic tradition, which is kind of held as a scripture by Muslims, you do have a command to love others. 
look into Hinduism, the Mahabharata, great epic of the Hindus. They have a form of the golden rule, and as I've said, so many world religions do and have, even predating Jesus speaking John 13. But what the other systems lack that makes this love command in Christianity new at the time of Jesus is the cross. No one else has the cross. Muslims technically have the cross, but they don't believe Jesus died on it. No one else has the cross. The newness of Christian love is the cross. It is God himself, not just from heaven pointing and saying, love each other. It is God himself entering into our world and saying, stand there and watch what it means to love each other. Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the very end. And then he went on a cross to prove the extent of his love. That's why for the Christian, loving is dying. Because that's the epitome of love. Greater love has no one than what Jesus did in going to the cross to die for his friends. He died, he took our wrath, and we get his righteous standing with God. We're adopted, we're brought into eternal paradise like the thief on the cross beside Jesus. And it's not for our suffering, it's for his suffering. We're accepted not because of our good deeds and love and righteousness, but because of his good deeds and love and righteousness. And he's willing to come here into our dirt and mud, get that all caked upon himself, suffer agony, be lacerated, die upon the cross for us. No other world religion, no system of thought, no Confucianism of the East, no, nothing else has this demonstration of love. God dying for his people. And therefore, when Jesus says, this is a new commandment, he means not that you've never heard to love each other, but I'm going to show you how to love each other in a way you've never seen before. Before Jesus came, there was a sort of general darkness in the world. Paul spoke of it in past times, he said, to the Gentiles, to the pagans. In past times, God allowed everyone to kind of go their own way. But in these last days, here's Jesus. There was a sort of darkness in the world. And as our text says, this command is new because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. The truth of this new command is proven in Jesus. And then because we imitate him, it's proven in us as believers. It's something different, new, supernatural, something the world had never seen before. And it's because the darkness of the past before Jesus, B.C., when he hadn't come yet in the flesh, before the cross, that is gone. And even now, whatever remains of it is being overshown by the brightness of Christ. He has come. The light that was over Bethlehem was just the beginning. And that light extends more and more. You see it in the world. You see it here. You've come to know Christ. So he says, and the light is already shining. There it is, shining. Why is the light shining now? It was dark. The light's shining now. He says the darkness is passing away and the light's shining. What does that mean? It's because of the cross. That's the difference. It wasn't there and then it was there and we're on the other side of it. That is why this is a new command. Not because no one knew to love each other before, but because Jesus demonstrated and instructed us in love in ways that the world never had seen before. If you're a Christian, you're aware that the people around you, including the people who don't know Jesus, they do a lot of acts of love. 
You'll find this pretty much anywhere. But this is Jesus' new command. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? A part of what makes this new command new for a Christian is that it's dangerous. Scripture says someone might even dare to die for a good man. If there's some reason in the person you're loving to die for them, to sacrifice or to be endangered for them, you might do it. But what if it's your enemy that fell off the bridge into the rushing river and you have to risk your life to save your enemy who's trying to kill you? <laughs> you say, oh, I didn't see that happen. <laughs> Let him go down the river. And yet Jesus came and when he went on the cross did just the opposite. His teaching was, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And the whole world says, amen, even Christians, sadly. And Jesus says, but I say to you, here's something new. Love your enemies. You do good to those who persecute you. And that's exactly the way Jesus lived. His death upon the cross, who is it for? Good, nice, moral people? It was for the crowds, just like us, crying, crucify him! Crucify him! It was for the Pharisees who, out of jealousy, had handed him over, out of selfish ambition, religious hypocrites. It was for them so that they might repent, believe, be saved, and enter paradise. It was for the thief on the cross, who we do pity him, but he was a thief. He stole something from somebody. Possibly, if Barabbas repented, as tradition has it, it was for Barabbas, part of a violent insurrection, who killed people, as far as we know. Those are the people Jesus loved. Those are the people Jesus died for on the cross. What's difficult for you, Christian, is that you have to love, as this new commandment, dangerously and at great risk to yourself, not just the Christians in this room you like. You know that Christian in this room? You know, don't look at them, but they snubbed you, they offended you, or they just annoy you in some way. You have what we call relational baggage from the past. You've got some unpleasant interaction. They've touched right at the heart of some pain. They've been insensitive. They've not thought about you. They've not texted you in weeks. It's like they ignore you. Okay, fill in the blank. You know those people? What's new about Christian love is you gotta love those people. You say, I love Christians. And you've got your four or five people who are your best friends and they look just like you. They talk just like you. Same season of life. They only say nice things to you, same demographic. Look, it's good. You should be good friends. I'm not trying to downplay that whatsoever, okay? But you know that if you weren't a believer, they would probably still be your best friends. You can quote movies and they get it. They watch the movies, you know. Okay, that's fine. But I just want to say with Jesus, even the Gentiles do that. You could do that as an unbeliever. That's, the, that's old. What's new about the command to Christian love is the people who never get your jokes. <laughs> you know, if you're really young, it's those who are older and there's a generational gap. They don't understand everything you're saying. You don't understand everything they're saying. They can't understand you because you're mumbling. You don't understand what they're saying and culturally they have different ideas from you about masculinity and everything else. Say I'm just going to stay over here on this side of the church, and they can go over on that side of the church with people like them. <laughs> I know that's comfortable, but 
It's not Christian. Christian love is dangerous. Christian love is only love if it hurts. If you surround yourself with only the people who make you not hurt, and you should have many of those people in your life, but if that's all you do, it's not fully Christian love. It's not this new command. The newness of the new command is the cross. Does your love for believers hurt? Not like masochistic agony against yourself, but does it cost you anything to love believers? Or is it just about you've befriended the people who are meeting the needs that you have? That's fine, but don't let that be it. Where are the people that you're meeting their needs and they're not reciprocating anything to you? Where are the people who are not your preferences? And what is your relationship with them? And how are you serving and loving them? The cross, it's death. Christian love is death. And it should feel a little bit like that. If you have a relationship with a believer and it hurts and when you interact it's not comfortable and easy and they offend you and sometimes it just feels like, well, that's like wrong and I'm going to just avoid that relationship. Well, that's what the Gentiles are doing. Just because it's hard doesn't make it wrong. Actually, in this case, it makes it very right. This is part of the paradox is that if your love for others feels dangerous, painful and risky then you know it's right. Then you know actually it's the safest place for you to be. Because then you know that your love for others is not just some kind of natural love that you could have as an unbeliever. Then you know that your love for others is this new kind of love. The Christian kind of love that is sacrificial and outward and expressive toward those who don't deserve it or don't pull it out of you. You give it to them. So the danger is the safety. So there is the paradox of Christian love. It's an old commandment. You've known it from the beginning, but it's new because Christ has demonstrated in his life and death that it is a dangerous, sacrificial kind of love we give each other. That's the paradox. Now we shift over to the rest of our verses and consider the picture of God's love, or the picture, sorry, of this command to love, which is in verses 9 through 11. Saw already at the end of verse 8, light and dark, so he continues that theme. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We said in chapter 1, when John talked about light, God is light, we need to walk in light, that light referred there primarily to two things. Pop quiz, you remember? Purity, truth. When John uses this picture of light here, he's referring to that second one. His reference is to truth. The bare proposition that he's giving us is actually really plain here, and it's set as a contrast, just like so many of his statements are in the book of John. It's simply this. Look, if you love your brother, meaning believers, you're in the light. If you hate your brother, you're in the darkness. The light, like I said, it's truth, or we could say a knowledge of the truth. Darkness here is ignorance. If you love believers, 
then you are in the light because you know the truth. If you hate believers, even if you think you know the truth, you simply do not. You can tell that truth is being emphasized because of our text, like verse 10. To walk in light is to have in yourself, quote, no cause for stumbling. And then verse 11 gives the opposite. If you're walking in darkness, he says, you don't know where you're going. The darkness has blinded your eyes. So if we blindfold you and spin you around, pin the tail on the donkey, you don't know where you're going. You're really trusting that you had some good friends who aren't trying to stick their foot out and trip you. Because if they do, you'll stumble. Nothing you can do about it. Because the darkness has blinded your eyes. But if you're in the light, take that off, and the light is on in the room, and they stick their foot out, you're not going to stumble over their foot. You're going to see it. That's the picture that he's giving here. But in a spiritual sense, if you love believers, you are clear-sighted about what's true. And if you don't, you're deceiving yourself. You're in the darkness. You're confused. You don't know true parts of what's most important in life. You're living a lie. This is, again, characteristic love, like we've said. Doesn't mean you perfectly love believers, but it characterizes your life. What he's saying here is, if your life is not characterized by love for Christians, you are living in incredible danger. It's dangerous to love Christians, like I said. It's a cross-like love. It is way more dangerous not to love Christians. If you can't stand Christians, you just can't stand them. Psalm 82.5 points to you and says, You, quote, have neither knowledge nor understanding. You walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Not only are you blindfolded, but the ground beneath you is shaking. And here there are stumbling blocks set everywhere, and you are called to run a 5K. Good luck. <laughs> It's dangerous. You're going to fall. You're going to skin your knees. It's like there's a huge canyon over here. You don't know. You're going to fall right into it. If you love your brother, there's no stumbling. But if you don't, you are living your whole life, your whole life, every day that you live, you are living in darkness with causes for stumbling and destruction all around you. At any moment, you may fall. Your life might seem like it's going okay. You have this intense bitterness toward maybe a specific set of Christians or Christians in general, and you feel this bitterness, and it's developing, and it's growing in your heart. You're not stopping it. You're letting it grow and blossom, and you wake up every day, and you feel fine, and you commiserate with your unbelieving coworkers about those terrible Christians over there. Can you believe what they're doing? And yet you are living every day in utter danger of destruction. If it's true that walking in the light means you're not going to stumble, then what does it mean to walk in the darkness? You're going to stumble. Like the prophet says, God has set your foot in a slippery place. It may slide at any moment. There is an immense danger to hating Christians, to hating believers. You might say, like, who, who hates believers? Oh, all of us sometimes. <laughs> if you just think broadly as a culture right now, the movement of culture is an increasing hostility toward Christianity. Now, John is going to tell us later that Christians, by definition, are hated by the world all the time. But 
just in our unique context, there's been a little bit more acceptance of Christianity because of our background here. That's changing. There's an increasing hostility toward Christianity. You go on a college campus, even just a few years ago, you go on that campus, and students will somewhat respect the fact that you're a Christian. Not anymore. So there is a changing hostility, especially among those who are younger. Christianity is more and more associated with hypocrisy. Karens who want to talk to the manager and all other sort of ideas of these self-righteous, sanctimonious, greater than thou. Now, to be perfectly fair, we're aware that there are so many Christians who call themselves Christian and they're not Christians. And therefore, by definition, they don't love, they don't keep the commandments of God. We don't need an unbeliever to tell us that because we've been seeing it in 1 John. So it is true that many who claim the name of Christianity are not and will live not in accordance with Jesus. So if the world looks at the bad examples of Christians who are not even Christians and says, that's Christianity, well, I don't know what we can do to stop them other than ourselves to live good, holy, righteous, loving lives. But also the culture is hostile toward things which are not false Christianity, but are true Christianity, which they would consider political positions, things like abortion and homosexuality and so forth. These things which we don't hold with any animosity, but because they're right. So Christianity is being pushed together with political ideas, and especially for a younger generation, it's being seen as nothing but hypocrisy. It's probably going to continue unless there's a revival that happens. And it is easy for anyone to be swept in the movement of culture, even in subtle ways. To come to think of Christians generally, even true Christians generally, as just hypocrites who are mostly in it for themselves. They're just comfortable American Christians. They're just bad. <laughs> it's easy even for a true believer to feel that way. And then you'll see individual examples of true believers acting not the way they should, because their work's in progress. And that can create in you a sort of tinder in your heart, a sort of kindling. And the world will come by with a match and say, let me put it there. And a conflagration of bitterness, even toward Christians in general. Or for you, it might be just a more specific. It might be just a set of Christians or certain people that you know here, or even just one person. And you have it. what he says here, you hate your brother. But what he says is if you hate your brother, and you say, you don't know this brother or sister. I don't have to. John does. It's fine. He says, if you hate your brother, whoever he may be, you hate him, you are in danger. It's not that he's in danger. You're in danger. You are walking in darkness. Christ loves his people. If you don't love Christ's people, you're in incredible danger. You're in darkness. He's not in darkness. But if, on the other hand, you love believers characteristically, you love them with all the pain and risk that love involves. And you try to grow every day in loving others well, the people that are easy to love and those that are not. If that characterizes your life, it's not perfect. Sometimes you let words slip and you got to reel them back in and ask forgiveness. It's not perfect, but characteristically, you love believers. Then your way is hard, but your way is bright as the full day. You know where you're going. You're following in the clear footsteps of Jesus Christ, and you will not stumble. Brothers and sisters, there's no way around the pain of it. If you commit yourself to a life of love, which you must, you will feel pain. 
You will feel pain from the world that will ridicule you more and more for being a Christian and loving those bigots over there. You will feel pain from those bigots over there or from other believers when you riskily try to love them. If you truly open yourself up to relationships, let's say you join a small group, highly recommend it, find the list, join a small group. You're getting into the lives of believers and you're opening yourself up. You're being honest as time goes on. If that happens, you may be, and maybe I should say probably will be at some point, betrayed. Jesus was. If you open yourself up to a life of love, you may be abandoned. Jesus was. You may be slandered. Jesus was. You are called to a dangerous task. You are the underwater welders of the world. You do walk with a cross on your back, loving, loving, giving, giving, being rebuffed, suffering wrong, facing disappointment, overlooking offenses, watching some of those you love leave you or leave the faith altogether. And they feel like crosses because they are crosses. Christian love is only Christian love if it hurts. Don't think that the pain of Christian love somehow makes it wrong. It is an old commandment we've always had. And even as a new commandment, it's focused for us by the cross, which hurts. The danger of Christian love is also what makes it safe because if your Christian love is dangerous, then it's like Jesus' Christian love. And that's the safest place that you can be. It's not an easy way we walk, but it is a bright way. If you've walked with the Lord a long time, you know what it means to weep and rejoice at the same time. That's the life of Christian love, but it's clear-sighted. So brothers, sisters, I encourage you, go on exhausting yourselves for the saints. Go on being offended and overlooking the offense. Go on experiencing some of the disillusionments that come with close relationships and continue developing the close relationships. Go on suffering wrong and accepting it and absorbing the cost of it. Go on confronting others for their sin and seeking restoration and reconciliation. Go on killing the fleshly part of you that wants the pound of flesh and does not want to forgive. Go on being misunderstood and seeing the person who misunderstands you and loving them every week. Go on exposing yourself to the possibility of pains, the possibility of church splits, the possibility of difficulties in small groups, the possibilities of those you love most and sacrifice for most turning against you. Go on doing that, not as if you were a victim. You have the privilege of following in the bright footsteps of Jesus Christ. That's Christian love. It's the love of the cross. And if it doesn't hurt, it's not Christian. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live our lives a little closer to these high and lofty words. We don't want to walk in darkness, so open our eyes. Help us to see in the cross of Christ a beauty that the world cannot see, contemptible to those who are lost because it is weakness, ugliness, and suffering. But to us, it holds a strange beauty because it is love. And I pray that we would not despise the way our Savior walked, but would bear with one another in love, forgive each other joyfully, 
suffer wrong well? I pray you would help us all every day to wrestle our hearts into good places with an optimism for the future of others, with a hopefulness for those who struggle that they would improve, and with a joy to come alongside those in difficulty to bear the burdens of others and so fulfill the law of Christ. Please help us to love in the Christian and the cross-like way, not merely naturally, but supernaturally, at great risk to ourselves and not as if we deserved anything in return, but to say at the end of the day, we're only unprofitable servants. We're doing only what's commanded of us. It is a good command, an old command, a new command, the command of love. Help us to receive it as such. In the name of Christ we pray.